with Matt and Hillary. My voice is raspy for God knows why. And I'm Matt. And I'm Hillary. And we're talking about the Kim Stanley Robinson novels still. We got more novels to read and talk about. And it's Galileo's Dream. Galileo's Dream. Yep. Chapter. We're on chapter 13, but like we're not really going. We are going chronologically through it, but also we're just talking about it in a more freely freewheeling way. It'll be this episode and then one more episode, I think. We're reading up to page 400 today. Yes. And um, yeah, we left off with the carnival, the the kind of um, amazing party that's on. Where is it? Is it in? I Where where was I it? I think it's on Callisto. Oh, is sure. it? I don't know. But they're all um, wearing these. It's oh, on Callisto. It's on Callisto. Because Io is the lava planet, right? Yeah. And um, and that and then that whole section ends with like this big crisis where they're floating in the lava and she sends him back abruptly and she has some kind of little mat that she can lay out on the lava that will you know protect her from falling into it. Uh, but we wanted to talk about a little bit about the party with where everyone is naked but they're wearing these like animal masks that are almost like attached to them somehow. And there's also animals just hanging out there like a tame tiger and stuff and just lounging and things. Um, And we, you wanted to talk about what we make of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, how about I'll read a couple of little passages from it and then we can like, perfect. Then we can talk about it because I mean, I guess the big question is to think a bit about in this section of the novel what are we what are we making of kind of the jovian society like not so much the i mean both the kind of like ganymede versus hera um conflict storyline um but also like how we like how we sort of like read this society as a whole is a kind of quest yeah is a kind of question that i have like maybe that's just how we would describe it or uh, I don't know what you think about it. Um, so that they're arriving. I mean, in the whole, I think that like uh, you, we've we've said repeatedly, just this is a really beautiful book, and something that I feel like we are not uh, doing justice to because we're not spending as long on it as we spent on, for example, the Mars books, is just like how great the descriptions are. Um, you know, we, I mean, we have the, just these like very, very wild kind of like images of these spaces being processed through Galileo's uh, eyes um, that are super defamiliarizing. Like um, here, the spaces are like, uh, they're very beautiful. Like everything is under this kind of like decidedly strange light much less bright than light ever is much less bright than light on earth um so there's a real like kind of um 
there's a kind of like uh not uncanny but like a slightly haunting quality about the way that the spaces feel even though then they also are represented as like kind of teeming with life but here on 243 um is like galileo's first glimpse of the of the carnival uh revel revelers um the the revelers were wearing elaborate masks and nothing else human bodies male and female tall and full white pink and various shades of brown but always topped by the heads of animals of one sort or another some of the animals were familiar to galileo others were fantastic creatures big hairy heads with antlers feathered human faces as broad as the shoulders that he held them up insectile wedges more familiarly he spotted fox heads wolves lions leopards rams antelope here was a heron there the very disturbing sight of a monkey's head on a woman's body there beyond her stood a medusa making him shudder and look away then he saw a group of tall bodies that appeared to be headless their furry faces looking out from their chests as in the old tales of the greeks those were strange enough to give El galileo pause were their bodies also masks but taken all in all it was still recognizably carnival um and uh he gets a boar's head and hera gets uh an eagle head and they walk through um you know like sort of multiple hallways people are naked they've tied like ribbons in their pubic hair uh and i'm on 246 um uh he asks Hera, is there a pure, is there a Lent to follow this carnival? She refers to them as Dionysics. Um, uh, and she, she says, some period of penance, you mean? I don't think there is. Then as they continued their promenade among the perfect animal-headed humans, Galileo spotted a real tiger, which gave him a huge start. No one else was paying any particular attention to it, and the tiger did not seem to notice the humans. Soon after that, Galileo spotted a trio of giant white-furred bears, awesome to witness, then a troop of baboons, a stag, a wolverine. All the creatures were relaxed and oblivious, as if the people there were only another kind of animal in some peaceable kingdom, where altogether went boldly on their way, and where humans with their skin so luminous, their long muscles so smooth, the women's figures so curvy, constituted somehow a natural royalty, even in such a magnificent host of beasts. Uh, and then after this, they go, uh, they dive into the water which sends galileo into a panic because he's not a swimmer but their masks are like um breathing for them uh and there are not only other masked people swimming under the water but there is a giant truncated fish like a head without its body and then dolphins sinuous and supremely graceful and something gray and rounded like a fat woman, then a whole pod of enormous whales, black and smooth, their long flippers paddling lazily. Their eyes were as big as dinner plates and seemed to regard the scene around them with intelligent curiosity. Soon after Galileo noticed them, a sound vibrated in his ear, a rising glissando that shot up and out of his range of hearing, then tore back down into it and dropped to a basso profundo so deep that his stomach vibrated uncomfortably. The low vibration was like the sound of the floor of the universe buzzing its continuo under all. Um, and that the the sound of the whales gets return, returned to uh, later. But I guess part of what struck me about this is like um, uh this space is so crazily disorienting, right? Like this is like, so they're in these, so at, at first, you know, I'm like, oh, I have a, I can sort of like 
imagine this is like a huge hall and all these people and they're sort of progressing through it. And yeah, it's really weird. And then it gets weirder thinking about like, how are the tigers and the bears there? And like, what's, you know, what's going on? Like, is this just like the natural order of things in this place? Uh, you know, uh, but then once they're in the water, all of a sudden, the space has to be much bigger than I'm picturing it, right? Because there are all of these whales in there, you know, and they're like swimming with whales in this space, yet the space feels like they're in like some kind of swimming pool because they're indoors. I mean, so there is just something, I think, I think the things that I wonder about this are like, this is like literally this transition. Like they're going to parliament basically or the equivalent they're going right. to like the you know this the meeting uh, the meeting of all the villages and towns right to like have an argument about what Ganymede's being been doing. Um but on the way they pass through this party right. So this is this like this is this threshold it is this liminal space like just like in a, the most like basic sense of that. It's like a you know in between it's a between um and then it also is really like, you know, I feel like this is a real like just in a book that has like a lot of like, you know, experiences of like, like we've talked about, like transcendence and like the kind of wild, the wild mental leaps of trying to like imagine the, you know, uh, the logics of the universe. This is like a, just a totally trippy space to me in a way that mm -hmm. I, I love and I'm just like very intrigued by. Yeah, I mean, like. On the one hand, I guess, I don't know. I Yeah, I don't know quite where to begin because on the one hand, you brought up the question of like, what do we, why is this in here basically? Or what is what does this say about the Jovians? <clears throat> but I'm also curious about like what its role is just in the book and like what kind of, yeah, what's going on, what the project underneath the project is in a way of, of, of what this, describing this space is for yeah and it goes with the kind of hallucinatory and um the kind of hallucinatory moments of learn you know sort of ex witnessing or experiencing mathematics that aurora uh allows him to do by putting on a helmet and then later the helmet trip through history and then also um later in the section that we kind of read for today the the experience of the other like the the kind of direct experience of jove the the thing we call the entity inside or that is jupiter or whatever yeah. so there's these series of almost of ecstatic experiences right of of they're almost drug experiences. They're like hyper-technologized. They're, um, they're experiences, you know, they're experiences of ecstasy. I think there's not much of a better word for it, but also they participate in a, like a kind of a rhetoric of ineffability because mm -hmm. it's just trying to stretch language as much as possible to describe something that, you know, is, is part of the imagination or is coming from an imagination. There's a later, quote where he says like imagine something like imagination is where things are created or like imagine the imagination oh is anyway i'll find it later i think but um imagination creates events what matters is something that happens in the mind which is at the very end of the section that we read for today i think it's on page 398 um 
so I guess like with like along with the kind of um sort of uh I can't I can't think of the right word regimented is the only one I can think of the kind of like uh, uh deep sort of devotion to the historical record that is in this book where Galileo <clears throat> Galileo's writings are being quoted and others are being quoted directly and there's a great deal of biological and biological biographical information <laughs> and biological information <laughs> too much some might say about him so there's this kind of like deep connection to like things that actually happened but then there's this whole other like half of the novel like the other 50 percent of the novel and they're shuffled together are these completely like totally flights of fancy that yeah if quantum physics is true then yes they really did happen <laughs> but, yeah, yeah yeah but uh but it but they only exist in the mind of kim stanley robinson and then as it's transmitted imperfectly into a literary text that we are then like absorbing imperfectly as well um and uh that's part of like kind of the mystery of both like of like the mystery of like the universe and science and literature and art and like human communication in general so i mean that's like not a specific answer at all but um but that's all i that's what i thought of when yeah no 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 that's really interesting i was just thinking that you know like i mean there's one sort of way that you can um you know one possible way that to read this novel would be to say like well the title is galileo's dream um and in fact, really, he is, you know, falling into when he falls into this um, syncope into his into this um, senseless state uh, there, you know, he's having these dream, he's having these dream experiences. And the novel seems to be telling us, I think that that would be like a bad way to read it. But there's this whole possibility of reading like how, like what he sees, how he understands his future society as just coming out of the stuff that he himself has access to for imagining another way of life. And that's why, you know, the main gal is called Hera and the one who seems to travel through space and time is called Ganymede. And, you know, uh, that's, you know, like, uh, and that's why they'd have carnival because that's like what, you know, uh, uh, and that's um, why they all, all of them naked look like Greek gods or that's something right. like sculpted, right. like, you know, right. Exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, and of course, like, I suppose, you know, that, even we could both take like this, uh, you know, the Jovian world to be a to be a real world, um, and also know that Galileo would have to be processing it through the things that he understands anyway. You know, like that you make sense of things through reference to the things you already know, which is actually a really important point for this section of the novel that sort of like you know comes to its kind of climax in their con contact with the mind this mind that is jupiter which is referred to directly as the other um mm -hmm. and is represented to us i mean we get these two different representations of like um uh you know at least forms of kind of radical otherness in um you know the contact with uh the creature in the european sea and in the contact with um uh uh, in in the contact with Jupiter with Jupiter itself, right? 
Um, but then I I think it's also just like trying to think about like um so like I'm kind of intrigued by the other thing we get in this section because this is when um you know at some point Galileo is like look you gave me the math tutorial please just give me the history tutorial because like I need to I need to get I don't get what's going on and he has been so caught up in this that like his daily life is getting completely fucked up he feels like he's in a constant state of deja vu um in a way that renders him quite feeling quite paralyzed right um and so at some point you know with Hera he's like why can't I have the I need the history tutorial show me history you know um and we get you know we get a very like sort of particular picture of history that is meant to like explain um, why there would be a really high stake in making sure that, like, the outcome of Galileo's life was, um, you know, a particular, you know, a particular way, right? Um, so we see this picture of, like, uh, of history as, like, this kind of battle between, like, um, science and religion that ends in a very familiar uh, total despoiling of um, Earth, you know, complete ruination of Earth. Anyway, so, like, you know... Um, so all so this you know the novel is just full of these kind of questions about like are there points in a life where you know something changes that makes a bigger difference right or what are the kinds of differences that make a difference or if you could go back and reflect on part of your life like um you know could you make that part of your life somehow better right you know can you change the way in which you understand things in order to actually like live better in the world and then if you did that you would have these other kinds of transformative effects um and then this other layer of questions about like are those questions that matter more for someone like galileo you know a special person or are these questions that really are just about like all all of us you know how we think about things anyway all of that seems to me like this is maybe just this is maybe just like me being overly hung up on the carnival right mm -hmm. but like what's what's weird about it is like it's carnival without being carnival like right. this you know it is this big party that they're having it has all the signs of carnival it has all the signs of like you know you know the the rite of dionysus you know like of being some sort of ritual or event you know of being a ritual that like um there's another side of, right? A passage, one goes through the passage and on the other side of it, you know, where you're in the next season, you're in the next stage of your life, you're in the moment of repentance, you're, you know, like it's time to plant the fields, whatever it is that like there's like a rite or a ritual that you pass through for. Um, but, you know, when he says to her, is, is there Lent after this? She's like, uh, no, right. um, you know, and so like, you know, so it has this kind of status as like carnival without carnival. And that makes me think like if we take this seriously as like this is one of the very few aspects of the culture of this future society that we see, um, uh, you know, and and she, we do know that this doesn't happen all the time. She's like, oh, it's carnival. That's why this is going on. Normally we could just like walk to the, you know, parliamentary hall uh, but instead, we have to do this like crazy thing where we got to go on a big swim with whales and all of this stuff in between. <clears throat> anyway, just like I'm not doing a good job of saying this, but I'm no, just like, really curious because... about this as like this is a picture of an alien society. And I want to, you know, I'm 
I'm interested how that plays here, I guess. I think, though, that's interesting because the way you put it, like that point that there's no Lent after this. So it actually the occasion for carnival doesn't actually exist. Right. Like like they like for in order for there to be a carnival uh, in the way that it's like initially conceived, there has to be this moment of penance and like both of them co-constitute each other. Um, and it's hard to, and it's a kind of a chicken or the egg situation <laughs> so that if you remove the egg, then what's the point of the chicken or vice versa, right? Uh, in other words, like if there's no Lent, then what, what purpose does uh, carnival serve or um, what is its meaning? And if it, and if it lacks a kind of uh, the meaning that is negatively produced by the existence of its absence, then is it is this carnival that they experience merely a um, a decadent pastime? Is this a society in decay and or you know in in a kind of <clears throat> decline? And um, could easily compare that to Carnival today, Mardi Gras. But also um, to suggest that like um, to also to um, uh, because this carnival is also deeply scientifically and technologically mediated. They're wearing these masks. They get to. So there's there. It's a parallel. Maybe perhaps we see a parallel between with the kind of science without religion thing. Right. Um, That that Galileo insists on to Ganymede later on that. <clears throat> these two things, science and religion, it wasn't about, you know, getting rid of religion earlier. It was about bringing them closer together um, and understanding um, that whatever you call it, if you believe in God or not, or how, why ever you believe in God with, because of the Catholic reasoning or the Protestant reasoning, or because of Galileo's reasoning, which is somewhere, somehow in between, like he, he recognizes as, as Hera is describing, or somebody is describing his place in history, he recognizes, oh, I'm kind of a Protestant then, because he's describing the universe as it presents itself to him, you know, uh, unfiltered through the ideology of the Catholic church, except for the fact that he believes himself to be a good Catholic. God is speaking to him through mathematics, and he is communing to God through mathematics and through the uh, perception of the world as it is, as it presents itself to his, to his eyes and ears and who is mind. Right. Um, so that that becomes this, you know, this way of looking at science becomes a holy sacred thing that the miraculousness of the universe and the miraculousness of human consciousness, consciousness's ability to understand things about the universe that are beyond our immediate perception, but that are arrived at through logical inference. These are things that actually ring the bell, um, as he puts it, of kind of communion with the other itself um, and the, the, the ineffable other, the one that you can never actually fully explain. You can only ever get sort of think about getting closer to in kind of spirals of like dialectical reasoning or something like that. And that this episode of carnival without the kind of requisite penance moment that gives you a recognition that this is a kind of a temporary thing or that we are, you know, 
finite beings that are not going to live for hundreds of years or maybe even into infinity the way that they do in the future that Cartophilus has lived for 400 years and he's getting really tired of it but what's the alternative um <laughs> to give yourself over to the manifold of manifolds which doesn't seem to be that appealing to live in the 10th dimension <laughs> rather live in just the three plus one um that uh yeah, that that perhaps this is this is kind of and this I think is obviously a a message that runs throughout Robinson's works. This tension between kind of science and what we call religion, or some kind of sense of like a sacred mystery and mysteriousness about just being in general. I mean, we have a like, yeah. I mean, yes, yes. I think that seems like uh, that's. Uh, that feels really helpful to me in in thinking about this. And as you were talking, I was thinking like, right. I mean, I, I think one, you know, it's often often in um, ut utopias, like particularly like you know the utopias post nineteen sixties, say, uh, um, you know, one of the things that like the utopian traveler has to sort of process is like uh why did what kind of like uh rituals parties events and holidays do they have you know and in places where um uh uh the sort of like um no one works by the clock of capital and in fact where clock time may not you know matter at all um, the status of a holiday is quite different. It's not like a break from drudgery, right? Um, uh, or in like, I, I mean, I feel like a good example of this is in uh, Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. They have this huge like um, celebratory day, which is like a big party for everybody in this society um, where they do all these performances and all of this other kind of like, you know, ritual activity, which is celebrating, um, celebrating the sacking of the Pentagon by Harriet Tubman. Um, and the visitor from the past is like, okay, Harriet Tubman did not sack the Pentagon. <laughs> and, and her, her host is like, we, we know that, you know, I mean, and kind of, so the point is, you know, like, this is one of those, you know, like, the moment of the ritual or what is like what is remembered what is ritualized what is celebrated and even just the presence of like celebratory energy itself is often one of the places where the the utopian traveler is like wait i don't get i don't get this because your mode of celebration like this indicates to me this very radical difference between life in utopia and life in my world right where we only celebrate in order to like be, you know, hungover afterwards, or, you know, you only, you get to have a festive day on that incredibly important um, event, your birthday every year, or, you know, like um, people like tell you they love you and give you presents only when you get married or are born and not at just other random times or whatever, you know what I mean? Like just this, that indicates like this kind of like, huge sort of like transformation um and here i think for, and here i wonder about like okay so this carnival seems to be very much about like i mean clearly it's about like sexuality sexual pleasure like but also like you know the sort of like the human animal 
thing seems to be part of what's happening here. And so I think I wonder about this as like, um, we just like don't get a lot of hints. You know, there's some hints about this kind of social order, but we see actually relatively little of it, you know, like we see it primarily through their kind of like, um, uh, you know, what they know, right? We see more about like the kind of physics they have than like what daily life is like anyway i'm sorry i'm going on way too long about this it just like this this intrigues me here because it is this kind of transitional scene where you know like galileo does you know like um uh because after at the end of this sort of section of the novel is when his trial starts you know um and this section of the novel is this kind of like briefly you know, there's this kind of briefly optimistic period, right? New Pope, who he thinks is going to be like the Pope who's on his side, you know, completely wrong in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the like ecstatic contact with the mind of Jupiter, you know, these kind of visions of like reconciliation, eh, whatever. I'm rambling. I'm totally no, rambling. I'm just like, I'm rambling. like, I'm just like interested in this. This to me like stands out in the book in a way that, you know, is like very, I mean, very much like the kind of thing that happens, you know, like, I don't know, in Robinson novels, like parties are always important, you yeah. know, yeah. and like celebrating, like, you know, mass celebration is always important. And um, yeah, anyway, I'm It done. does feel like it calls out. I mean, there's so, I feel like uh, the more I read these novels in general and um, think about them, the kinds of, I guess palimpsest might be the word, but the kinds of pastiche that they engage in with a long and diverse literary tradition fascinates me more and more. And insofar as like Hera's, you know, psychology sessions with him are essentially like Ghosts of Christmas Past uh, Dickens <laughs> yeah. moments, like literally right out of Christmas Carol. Um Dante is like a huge part of this, like their trip to the Jovian hive mind or whatever is very much like Paradiso or whatever, like the end of Paradiso. Um, And like, it's tempting to try to think about the carnival in relation to something like Wizard of Oz, where like there's some kind of coordination between the fantasy world of color and the one of also equal color in Italy, but like a different sort of... um, set of hues and 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 things uh, because also like the the regalia of the popes and their kind of oddly shaped bodies as well yeah. <laughs> is uh also yeah. on display so like there's this these parallel universes or you know multi-dimensions that um i think part of the project of this novel and other of his novels is to get us to see how weird just everyday reality is too, not just science, like everyday reality, just like as he was growing up in Orange County, watching 10 acres of orange groves per day be tore up. Everyday reality is really fucking weird and science fictional, um, even in our most mundane kinds of uh, experiences. Um, But especially when you get into the realm of politics and like complex (laughs) uh, civilizational or social organization where people's clothes mean different things and uh, the way they like uh, behave toward one another, uh, like how their behavior can just change on a dime because of the presence of somebody else in the room. Um, uh, I feel like those, those are all things Mm -hmm. that kind of 
are opened up there maybe um yeah yeah i that just made me think of the um uh on 280 that like yeah the we have seven secret lives i, I have that open right here yeah well hell yeah uh we we all have seven secret lives the life of excretion the world of inappropriate sexual fantasies our real hopes our terror of death our experience of shame the world of pain and our dreams no one else ever knows these lives consciousness is solitary each person lives in that bubble universe that rests under the skull alone Galileo struggled on with his new sickness, his ability that was a disability alone. Um, uh, I mean, I'm really like the the ability that is the disability is, I think, a really interesting figure um, here. Um, but yeah, I'm also like the kind of I was thinking I thought about this passage because thinking about like, you know, Hera's like taking him into these past moments and the sort of question of like what like you know that vision of like working on your working on yourself you know which is a kind of moral it feels like a moral accounting like it's much more a moral accounting than like a psychoanalytic or mm -hmm. even psychological kind of accounting in some ways um uh but then that you know that idea of consciousness as solitary there's something also in here right you know like even that like what he experiences from this very intense thing that he has, which is like this like proleptic trauma of, you know, right. not just, a, you know, not just the proleptic trauma of like having experienced himself being burned, um, you know, and a trauma that thus produces like repetitions, but rather than repetitions that, that like, you know, stick you to something in the past or sticking him to something in the future, um, but it's also like the kind of like, you know, his whole brain has been refigured by like learning not only this like physics that like he, you know, can only intuit. There's no there's nothing that he can do toward it, but even there's nothing he could do toward proving it. But mm -hmm. even the stuff that he could get he can get closer to being able to himself, like engage in experiment and think about like the, you know, like the question about the tides. Right. Like even that he can't actually like process in the way it's necessary to process things. But so on the one hand, this seems extraordinary, but then on the other hand, it ma manifests itself. Like when he's talking with Cartophilus, Cartophilus is like, oh yeah, the French have names for these things. And I think it's, it's deja vu. And, you know, deja vu is like so common that they don't even put it into like the, right. the catalog of like disorders. It's just like a thing that happens all the time. So I was just thinking like, you know, and the idea that we all have the same seven secret lives does say, well, then these are not secret. You know, consciousness is not so isolated in that little bubble at all. We just tell ourselves that these are our secrets, that nobody else has them, right? Well, yeah, but they also are our own. Per like, we don't experience other people taking a shit, hopefully. I mean... No, but we might know a great deal about what that's like, given that we also do it. Like, not to we brag. also do it and also hope that like nobody will open the door of the bathroom while it's going on. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, we're alone together in our bubble universes. Um, but, um, oh, what was I going to say? Shoot, I forgot. What else? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what else? There's a lot. There's just so much in here, um, as as usual. Um, I think I mean, that even, one. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna no. say, even the idea of seven secrets is like right. you know a magic spell or an incantation or something, right? You yeah. know, like it has the sort of. Um, uh, I don't know. This is part of the like way in which I think that this book is just so. Uh, is so delightful part of it is like the mix between these things that feel like you were talking last time about the way in which like the sort of like humors theory comes up in this and some of the delight of the book is in this kind of like mix between things that seem like they register to us as like you know um uh well, this is a way that people used to think or used to describe the world and has a sort of like, you know, alchemical or magical overtone to it. And this is a way that people will in the future describe the world and also has a kind of like alchemical or magical overtone to it, you know, like, uh, but we in manifold the present of manifolds is just like an, it, that's like an invocation, yeah. you know, like, yeah. uh, but, yeah. but we in the, but we in the present know best we in the present, right, know right exactly. you know, and that, and that's, and which is, I mean, that's perfect for thinking about this section, right? Because like this is on 289, um, you know, in one of the, I mean, also really great about this book is like how much, um, how much there is, if despite it being like very, very fun in all these ways, it has so much about like deep, deep sadness. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. which I think is not really reconcilable, doesn't get just easily, there's no, that's not easily enfolded into any of the kind of like narrative play, right? Like right. there just is this kind of like deep sense of sadness, but um, uh uh, there was a heaviness, the heaviness in Galileo did not allow him to vibrate to this site in his usual way, much less to ring. It had been many years since he had rung like a bell at the discovery of some new thing. And really the objects seen through the telescope had been disenchanted for him by all that he had seen in his proleptic visitations to Jupiter. People would inhabit the stars and yet remain as petty and stupid and contentious as ever. All the vices fully active, in fact, still writhing as lustily as ever in their vicious ways. It was horrible. Um, but just that sense of like, you know, having been robbed of, um, you know, having been robbed of that sense of enchantment or even that sense of like transcendence and discovery, um, precisely because of the way in which like he now has, he's this very like ill fit into his present moment. He has no capacity to simply be in the moment at all anymore because he's already been in this moment or the moment is always attached to the next moment or something like that. Well, yeah. And the, and the way that the novel has it, it's that it's tied both to his knowledge of the future and his knowledge of a mathematics that is beyond his yeah. ability to, yeah, yeah. to describe, let alone prove. But also he's in a situation in which he's kind of he's barred from actually talking about the mathematics that he can actually prove and that he's so impotent in other ways of his life, like with, with regard to his daughter and who he is like given up to this convent that, you know, she's slowly starving to death over her whole life. And, and so there's all these, and, but he, but, but he's still possessed of the full knowledge of all of that stuff. So that's that, that disability, that disability or that illness that's a or the what is it disability it's a disability yeah yeah and it, it's just like this kind of like you know massive imp impotence in the in the face of all this kind of knowledge of the things that he could be doing but can't bring himself to do any of that stuff yeah um, yeah and also that he like i was thinking like is because 
I'm curious about like what, you know, part of what Hera does is to say like, you know, you have to face the way in which like ways that you have behaved, um, particularly toward the women in your life, um, uh, are, were unjust, you know, and you have to face how that like injustice has shaped the experiences that you've had, right? Right. And that you benefited from things that, you know, on the essentially on the backs of others, particularly other women. Um, and I was thinking when I was reading the other day, like, does that, you know, do we see that play out in Galileo when he's in his present moment? Do we see that sort of like argument that she makes play out? I mean, and maybe it plays out to some extent in the like rather extraordinary care he ends up taking for the convent where Marie Celeste and Archangela, poor Archangela hitting her head against the wall, um, are, you know, although of course also like it doesn't really like, you know, all he's doing is like just trying to get them like an extra meal every day and like repair the roof, you know? Well, he, um, you know, it, it it's, it relates, obviously, it, it, you know, because we've been, I don't know if, if we've recorded this much, but trying to figure out how to reconcile these two parts of the novel or like that part of the novel, like his, that kind of sense that if his relationships with women was better than something else, like then he wouldn't be burned at the stake somehow, like for, right, for right. actions that don't have anything to do with his relationship with women. But at the same time, the book is a, double or a triple or a quadruple or a n number narrative so it's about him as a person as well and um so that there's that other sense in another plot in in the ganymede plot that if we go back and change the past we can somehow redeem the future so his actions with regard to maria celeste and the claire convent um in that he's going to basically turn his garden into a farm that he's going to move closer to them, that he's going to visit them every day, that he's going to help with the carpentry. There is this kind of sense that like he made this mistake of sending his daughters there. Um, he can't change that. And the best he can do is hope for redemption. But I feel like what, it, what it shows is there's no such thing as redemption. Redemption it, itself is this kind of like, you can't undo the past. Right. And you can't make it better. Um, so you can only change your own sort of present, uh, how you behave in the present or something like that. There's another line in here that says something like, um, fate is, fate is the thing that changes, not individuals. Like people don't change, fate changes or something. And that was really interesting to me too. Like you can change yourself, but you can't change fate, which is a counterintuitive. Like it's- a Yeah, twist. yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, again, sort of back to the, like, you know, this big kind of question that that even, like, the seven secret, you know, the seven secrets that we have, our seven secret lives, raises, which is, like, you know, I'm, whatever, this is going to sound really dumb when I say it, but, like, what is the relationship of the individual to larger, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the kind of... Um, That's the question. What is it, to, what like, what is it to make history? I mean, I... Yeah, I was thinking the like um uh because one of the you know one of the sort of um 
in some ways, so, you know, like Hera says, I, I have, I think I have two thoughts here. Hera says like, um, you know, basically like you have these failings um, and like, we're going to address them by, you're going to directly revisit episodes in your life. Um, and one of her major diagnoses of him, maybe her major diagnosis of him is like, you know, his patriarchal behavior. And she describes patriarchy as a structure of feeling, right? So in that way, right, this is, I mean, and this is like, when you think about like, what would he, how should he have treated his daughters? I mean, it feels very, you know, like on the one hand, like, God, don't send them to this horrible fucking convent. That sounds terrible. But on the other, on the other hand, like, you know, um, uh, what, what options presented themselves is, to him right. at the is, time? Is, in is, the that first actually, place? is that actually an option? Is there an option for him to do something different? Just as like he can work with, and he does ultimately, like I, you know, in you know, a kind of like loving faith, like in his persona as the gardener, as opposed to the scientist, like he, you know, does everything he can. Um, and he clearly like, you know, truly loves Marie Celeste, if not the other, if not the, if not the difficult, crazy daughter. <laughs> tries. If not the, if not the daughter who is actually really angry about being sent to the convent, he loves the dutiful daughter, but, um, right. you know, like, uh, but, you know, so we have this sort of question there of like, well, if, you know, if indeed patriarchy is a structure of feeling, which I I take to mean like deeply saturated um, in the structural relations of a historical moment. I mean, I think that's what that is meant to mean there. Then like, is that something that you can deal with by becoming a better person, you know, Um is, you know, is the way that we like think about something like that by like thinking about like who was a sort of exception to the rule, you know, uh, right? Um, he's ahead of his time or who's yeah. ahead of his exactly like he was very ahead of his time in these relations. And we do, you know, I mean, I think often like you wonder those things like when you are doing like historical work and you're reading about, you know, like I, right. uh, you know, like well, I especially have... comes up when you're doing like work on like an artist or like their their oeuvre or whatever, and then you're oh these amazing works of art that they created and they they are so meaningful to me, and then you find out they're a piece of shit in their personal right. life. It's like, right. well, yeah, everyone's a piece of shit, <laughs> right? Or like you know, like does it you know obviously like things that you experience in your life can like um can put you in relation to norms in such a way that you can become quite critical of those right. of those norms you know like and and i mean and maybe you know find thus end up saying things that like you know but whatever i mean so this is like a complicated question and has and and it has everything to do with the idea of some like deep you know do we have a deep private interiority um, you know, are we in fact so like cut off from others that like we live inside a little bubble, you know, like how would one reconcile that with the idea that humans are just like inherently, I mean, one of the things that the Jovians seem to think is that human beings are inherently like fighting, competitive, angry, all of these kinds of things, you know, and like something should needed to come in to like rein human life in, which would be the rationalities of science as opposed to on their account of it, like 
you know, the irredeemable irrationality of, um, of religion, right? Um, so, so then this also makes me think about something, I don't know, maybe this is again, like me, like getting fixated on something that is not really the kind of, um, you know, that's just like simply not whatever. Maybe this is just me like getting engaged with the details, but like the, um, when a Cartophilus is talking to, um, I think after, so like 292, 293, like he's talking about, you know, like being a gypsy. Um, right. uh, and then he, he's saying like, okay, yeah. So Ganymede does come from the future. You know, he tried with Archimedes to like, and that didn't work out because there was no culture that could be Archimedes could understand these things, but you couldn't build a culture around them at that moment in time, which is a really interesting, like kind of complicated uh, comment. But then he, he again tells us something I think we've heard earlier, which is that to make, um, to make the, um, the proleptic the analeptic devices they had to drain essentially destroy these gas giant multiple gas giant planets right right and i i think we talked about this before but i've been thinking since you know this whole time about like whether that kind of um that sort of idea that like we have a human project that is worth engaging in this kind of like large-scale destruction of an entire world um that like extractive logic you know it's there we can get it we might as well because it that thing is not a thing at all right and i think in this section because like we we come to understand that jupiter is a mind then that does open up the possibility that like destroying those gas giants was destroying Right. Um, these other kind, you know, that was actually destroying like intelligence. Um, right. But even like, you know, from reading the Mars books, we might just think like, even if the planet is not intelligent and even if the planet is not quote alive, like there would be something pretty fucking bad about just being like, this is just resource for us to use. So I have this kind of question about whether, and then, then when we see the, like the sort of the course of history, um, this is on like 376 to 377. Um, one history is understood through this tutorial. I mean, and you know, everybody should be suspicious of their history books and Galileo should also be suspicious of the history book that's being implanted in his brain. But like the course of human history is religious war. Um, we have a whole conceit from Ganymede about how like primitive people will always be like freaked out by people who have more than them, which is like to me like a very suspicious like account of um, could could, you know, be a sort of like um, alibi for colonialism in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but then uh, anyway, I'm, like saying 30 things at the same time here, but then. Uh, on the bottom of 376, okay, so it's religious war, right? It's science versus right. religion. And ultimately, it is that that fucks up the planet. Of course, you know, I'm like, where's capitalism here? Yeah, you know, exactly. the, that kind of seems like maybe that's really what fucks up the planet. Uh, and then and then after that, he saw the, saw the slow restoration of Earth. Um, oh, sorry. A human civilization that was now aware of the dangers that the extinction of any species posed for all of them. 
did what it could to restore the natural fauna and flora of the earth and the underlying chemistry of the ocean and air so badly poisoned. Here they were aided by the fecundity of life. And in this era, science was finally directed entirely at the problem of restitution and put foremost in humanity's judgment of its efforts. And we so we see this like picture of restoration. Um, and then what we learn is that um, Ganymede is like... Um, but what we need is not just restoration, we need redemption, right? And that, and it's redemption that leads him on the quest to like, let's like do this extractive work on the gas giant planets and use it to build this machine where I'm going to travel back and show Archimedes a laser. And from then on, like things are going to be okay or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. So I just like, I think so this this kind of line is like really very interesting to me and it like the i think idea ideas right now about what restoration means are you know i mean and obviously in particular ecological restoration but all the ways in which we use restoration to indicate what what we think needs to like happen next um i think that these are this is like actually a very important thing to think about, like what that language suggests, along with the language of repair, um, right? Which we often use both for imagining like how we would like do ecosystemic healing, but also how we would do historical healing, right? Mm -hmm. Rep reparation. Um, uh, and that we, you know, uh, so restoration, uh, repair, um, Already, I think like this is like a very these are like very complicated like stories that we're telling when we start talking about those things. Um, and then so I wonder whether like it's the redemption part of it, you know, that does in some ways seem to suggest that like, you know, if there is a bad version of if there is floating around here a sort of like bad version of like what a like religious consciousness would be, it might well be one that was like overly obsessed with like, let's redeem, let's redeem the past. We've got to redeem the past for the future. And therefore our actions in the present, our destructive actions in the present that might be able to give us redemption are going to be worth it. Are justified. Yeah. Are justified. Right. You know, and that is like, and it's like Galileo you know, the, the Catholic who doesn't think that it's justified and right. it's Galileo, the Catholic, who's like, you, you killed Jupiter's daughter in the right. oceans of Europa and who hears like the whale scream of, you know, pain. Yeah. Right? right. Well, and like, this is in the wake of all of his friends dying and his ex-wife dying and his mother dying. And like, I was going to bring that up earlier too, or I forgot about it as soon as I thought about it. But, um, <laughs> the, the, you know, that, that part of this is all in the wake of this, like incredible amount of death and his patrons and his allies yeah. and the papacy and the, in the, in the Vatican are dying. And, and, and that part of that kind of Hera's project with regard to him it has to resonate with the fact that he can't make things what good with people who are dead. Right. Like he can't, you know, and so that, that fantasy of redemption in that way requires some kind of, you know, like for, for Ganymede, he's putting, he's setting up Galileo to be a martyr and Galileo's like, I don't want to be a martyr. Like that's unnecessary. We don't need martyrs. And, but that story of redemption requires 
a martyr. And so what is Ganymede doing with Europa, it, but martyring it, you know, um, whatever he did to destroy that that en entity inside Europa, he offered Jupiter's daughter up as a martyr for his cause. And that's not his place to do. And um, obviously, and it's not how things work, like scientifically, I guess, would, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that like on, uh, uh, I think that the sort of like the, the, you know, that we see, he hears the sound of the whales mm -hmm. while at the carnival swimming at carnival in this very uncomfortable way at carnival. Um, uh, and then, um, the sort of contact with the creature on Europa, um, the sound of its death is also a whale sound. Um, Basso profundo. The basso profundo. And then on 390, when they're um, just before they are, they come into contact with the Jupiter intelligence, um, the looping glissandos first heard in the, in the European ocean filled his mind long up steep downs or even wild excursions sideways. It seemed in tone and in texture or some realm of sound he had never known the howl of the wolves in the hills at night, the sound of the whales in the aquarium gallery on Callisto, the only sob he had ever heard from his father, choked and desperate one time as he rushed from the house into the street. There was an ear in his mind, cringing at sounds that only he heard. Um, you know, what I was thinking about that was like, um, you know, that sort of, that, well, one, I think like the role of not just music, but also sound in here is really fascinating, right? Like, the you know the ring the ringing like a bell uh obviously like you know the need to be able to like uh capture or represent mathematical stuff that like you know dummies like me aren't going to understand by reference to music right um uh but here this i uh but here i think the kind of like um the echo between the whale cry, right? Something that like Galileo does not hear in his historical life, right? Um, the sound of the wolves, the sound of his father crying, like this is private in some ways, you know, it's his own set of associate, it's his own like associative logic. Um, but it's also like a very like shared, this is a very like shared picture of like, um, uh, it's a picture of shared experience, you know, like uh, that the sound that the sound of a wolf is like lonely or frightening. That the sound of a person crying is, you know, like th these yeah, are there's... these are right. Like this is this very like so really in some ways this is like a very like out this this is like the outside of the head, you know, like right. yeah. There's something profound. I mean, like profoundly um, primordial about it, or whatever. Um, that's sort of undeniable on a kind of level on the level of just existing. Um, yeah, yeah, like not per not personal and, and that burst personal and, and that bur yeah, personal, it bursts right. the bubble, the bubble, the internal skull bubble, um, because it is sort of um, mutual, very very mutual. Um, but also that it, you know, I think to the parable that he writes in his dialogo or yeah yeah maybe yeah, it's the saggiatore about the 
the man who's like studying bird song and then he discovers that other things can make similar sounds and then he realizes he doesn't know where sound comes from right. he thought it just came from birds right um, well and he and gets then, there by pulling apart a cicada and then right. being like oh shit yeah. yeah i broke it lenny lenny from of mice oh, and men <laughs> the rabbit too too hard and then and but that his father was a musician it ties in with that but that also like sound as a phenomenon itself is so fleeting like yeah. it's not like a, a vision in a way because you know at not, not with galileo but like you know photography can capture a, a vision but also painting and like the renaissance this you know uh, perspectival art can like really create illusions and and freeze them in time and sound doesn't freeze you can't pause a sound right yeah yeah um so it is like this ephemeral if uh ineffable thing um that you have to ask other people did you hear that right yeah 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 um, yeah exactly um i wanted to mention um not to like switch gears too much oh no um but Please. the part where he is writing the dialog dialogo is another great i don't know if it's another great or if it's the great moment of auto fiction i guess is what it would be because it's it's stand writing about a writer writing yeah and it's very hard not to imagine stan imagining himself into galileo's routine of writing one or two hours a day maybe one page maybe 30 pages and then going and tending the garden and weeding the garden and finding yeah. great satisfaction in weeding the garden yeah. and adding the weeds to the compost pile and uh and then thinking of something to write down and like repeating it it to himself over and over again until he can get it down on paper and then going back to weeding the garden so it's just a very funny uh but it, of course with galileo and all of his health problems <laughs> um interesting to think about sort of that transposition of of stan into galileo's body and like the joy of writing yeah. uh, because there's also that great moment too there's a lot just so many great little passages and snippets in here but that um galileo started writing and he was writing in order to forget so that he could write it down and not think about it anymore right um which is such a powerful kind of you know idea but also kind of almost fact about writing is like you you write it down so that you can get it out of your mind a little bit. Um, right. And the, then he, you know, he makes this book, which he writes in this like dialogue between three people. So conversation mode, um, which he does in order to like create plausible deniability about, you know, so that he's in the, the allowable being speculative about Copernicanism and not right. saying that it's true. Um, but then of course, like, it's like that the book is posed as a conversation does create certain kinds of interpretive blurriness. And then this becomes like in the next section of the book. And it, like once the trial starts, like the question of like how that book is to be interpreted and in whose mouth, like the words of the truth are meant to be like, um, which again, you know, like that has this very like, uh, is both i mean that the la that the trial section which obviously we're talking about next time is to me incredibly tense like um uh but also the kind of this is a really interesting i think there's a very interesting variant on um the kind of um uh like really like um 
complicated and playful engagements with like narrative theory and narratology that we get in Aurora and in 2312 and obviously in New York 2140 like um that we get in some of the later novels there is kind of a version of it here and then it plays differently because it also has this great like you know this whole book is like the fact fi- you know the fact fiction problem right like you know the events of Galileo's life here are like factual we have so much quoting from Galileo's own writing mm-hmm. um you know like i think if we were like uh whatever, if we were uh, doing this in like a um, longer form way, you could spend like multiple days just like talking about how the epigraphs are working here and why most of the epigraphs are from things that are contemporary to Galileo. And in fact, things that he, you know, I'm going to guess did read or or at least could have read, but then some of them are not contemporary to Galileo. Right. I mean, and that like play is like, um, uh, there's something like just like very, like very marvelous there, but, 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 you know, like to me, I mean, this, I guess gets back to the thing about like, you know, why do I feel like I want to be literal minded about like, what do we know? What do we know about the Jovian society as opposed to being like, this functions primarily as like metaphor or allegory or whatever it might be is that like part of the pleasure of this book is that I don't think that it resolves itself in a kind of like, you know, quote unquote, postmodern indeterminacy thesis. It's interested in indeterminacy, but like not in a sort of like simple minded, like, how do we know what's true kind of way? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even a, just in a like storytelling kind of way, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um. I was going to say one other thing. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Um, About, well, I don't know if I can say it because I'm not sure what it was I was going to say, but the horoscope that he creates for Ferdinando. Oh, yeah. Which is like very, you know, scientifically for his time responsible and very well done. And he's got a nice cover on it. And it very (laughs) clearly shows that he's going to die in 22 years and the signs are all very strong and then he turns it in and he dies 22 days later and everybody just kind of like forgets that he even made it and that kind of that was really interesting to me because it both like in parallel with Ganymede's project of like changing the past so that so that x y and z would happen in the future and that we would get to science faster and like avoid all the problems or whatever um, and that also like, we're going to kill the Europe, we're going to kill Europa so that my Ganymede's future doesn't end up in human extinction or whatever, like that, this kind of like divination yeah, um, is farcical then and it was farcical, it's, and if it was farcical in 1620, it was equally farc- farcical in like 6,020 where Ganymede is coming from or whatever, like, um, but that also like the, I, I was, fa- I, I think it's fascinating the kind of response, the non-response that it's, um, that, it, that it's poor predictive, uh, qualities had was, was fascinating. Like 
ever, nobody really expected the horoscope to actually be true. And yet there was a great deal of significance put into it and important to make it and to show that um, he was born under a good sign and that good things were going to happen. Um, but then when he turns it in, there's no consequences really, except for one person. One person recognizes that Galileo himself was, you know, a fraud, basically like prostituting his, he calls it like prostituting his mathematics or something like right, that in, right. in order to find a patron. Right. Um, so that there's also, there's already a kind of common sense version of the fact that like prediction is not real or whatever. Right. Right. And there's like a little, you know, there's a little sort of like, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's like more to the astrology thing that I don't really know how to think um, uh, how to think through. Um, although friend of the show Phil did send me some texts suggesting that they have a um, a theory about how um, astrology plays out here. But I mean, one of the things. Uh, which I will de- which I will delve into more. Um, but one of the things that, you know, part of it is like there's a sort of like joke about the idea of science fiction as predictive, right? right. You know, um, right. Uh, which then in a in a book that's about like going backward in order to change things, like becomes like, you know, sort of a fun a funnier uh, uh, a funnier kind of joke. Mm-hmm. But but also then I was just thinking as you were talking, like, it's kind of interesting in the way in which, like, also, you know, it matters so much, like, who the Pope is. Yeah. Right? And so it seems like it should, so there's this whole thing about, like, about signs, too, like, reading the, reading the signs, which is one, something that, like, Galileo is not good at, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know, like, but you think like, oh, this is a good, it's a good sign. There, there's, this guy is the Pope now. Um, and so, you know, things are going to, things are going to get better. Right. But then it turns out that like becoming the Pope basically like turns you into like, you know, a power mad freak, whatever you yeah. were before. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think, I feel like there, there's like a whole thing about like, um, uh, um, misinterpret misinterpretation there yeah yeah um yeah i mean the the yeah good signs and bad signs and like oh this is a really good sign that this pope and like all of his cousins and his friends are all now in power and that's going to be great for me but then there are bad signs because a bunch of my friends are actually dying and then when you actually see the Pope, he's like completely different, a completely different person than he was when you knew him before, even though he's just wearing different clothes. But the position itself, the structure of the position itself has completely changed the person. So maybe it's not so much that individual intentionality is so important for making change in the world, but rather like there are much bigger things at play yeah, that yeah. even the people you know, gravitational pulls that even the people subject to them do not understand and don't even recognize because it's in their interest not to recognize them. Yeah. Right. Um, And because also like, Hey, like the Pope, it's, 
you must be pretty fucking scary to be the Pope in certain ways. Like <laughs> you are being pulled in lots of different directions. And there, and especially in like the 17th century, there are enemies around every corner that like, you know, uh, and also they're engaged in this 30 years war and the Pope is in this really preci precipitous position between these two Catholic um, empires that are at war with each other and like doesn't know, you know, has power, but doesn't really have power um, and has to like walk that weird fine line. And I just was thinking to uh, kind of on a side note um, about the 30 years, the status of the 30 years war in the background of this book. Yeah. Yeah. And with especially with regard to just it being, you know, trying to think about it not as a story about the past or the future, but as of a story of the present in 2009 when it was published and yeah. America being engaged in this longer than 30 years war with the Middle East and with like most of the rest of the world, in fact. But um, and the kind of like status of science within that, because, again, like going back to the science religion thing. The 20th century wars were not about religion. They were about like different ways of seeing the world and like, you know, who has ownership over it and that kind of thing. But they were not like religious wars in the same way that the 30 years war was religious war. And the 30 years war was not a religious war in the way that we would like to think of it as a religious war right. either. It was about power and money and influence and, and territory and ownership as well. So, um, that that distinction that Ganymede is making between science and religion, as Galileo points out, is like a completely false one. He's like, you're, you know, he says you're devoted to like maintaining the appearance that these are separate things. And in reality, they're not. They can't be. They're both ways of like being in the world that we have to reconcile with with each other somehow. Yeah, yeah, I think that seems exactly that seems like exactly uh, exactly right. Or that the you know, that like. There's an appealing story in thinking, you know, they're just like, I mean, and in part, there's like, an appealing story in saying, in thinking that they are opposed because there's an idea that one could come out on top and, and win, whereas like they could easily just destroy each other. Right. Or. Right. Right. And I mean, and there's an appealing story in that in that it's like, you know, it imagines that like uh, it is in the realm of ideas that right. all this, you know, like the, the con you know, I mean, and it's true, like as gets pointed out, you know, Galileo never really learns that nobody is ever convinced by a better argument. Right. This um, is why he's writing the book to so that Urban will finally be convinced by his brilliant writing. Right. Exactly. And, and, then, and Urban just reads it and like reads exactly what he wants to read into it. Right. Right. Anyway. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, the parable, the parable of the birds is a classic case in point where it's like Galileo thinks he's creating this clever parable that's very easily readable and you'll get the point of what I'm saying. And then the Pope like repeats the parable to him and tells him what he thinks it means. And Galileo's like, yes. But from our perspective, the reader, I'm like, I don't think the Pope understands that parable to mean what Galileo thinks it means. No. And also what is, what is like the, the like, you know, creepiest story we know about the Pope is that he demands that all the birds in the Vatican be killed. Right. I mean, <laughs> I and in that way, you know, like, Hmm, maybe he read that story about pulling the cicada apart and really misunderstood, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's like the kind of, uh, you know, um, I mean, I guess this is connected to like the, when, 
uh Hera is like makes Galileo remember when he almost dies by inhaling poisonous oh, yeah. gas in like a really nice cool a uh, like cool cave like chamber in a in a mansion or whatever right uh you know we're we're like you know that becomes essentially uh, essentially like a metaphor for him being just like detached from where like the real work is going on but of course like you know if that's if that is true then like it doesn't matter that much what happens to galileo any way right you right. know like yeah 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 that's a that's a harrowing that's a harrowing story it's also funny just because they're they're feasting with this rich guy and then they're so stuffed full of food and wine that they have to like lay out on this cold on marble this cold floor. floor is it is that, that a, like i mean i assume that this is something that really happened in galileo's life i i do too but it also it totally sounds like a parable well yeah i mean I mean, yeah, you tell the story of your life in the you you remember the things that are very memorable and then they become meaningful to you in the way that a parable might be meaningful, right? Like this is also kind of her Hera's point in finding those nodes of memory that are so that make the biggest impact that then you structure your whole kind of identity around. Like you go back to those moments that you can't forget and either say, I'm not glad I'm not like that anymore, but mostly you're like, oh, there I went again doing that same fucking thing I keep doing and can't avoid not doing anymore. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I'm the only one who keeps making the same mistakes. <laughs> that, that's one of your seven secret lives. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Um, I, oh, let's just finish. But I would say too, like that, that hallucinatory moment of communing with Jove, right. Is so cool and interesting. And I do think it is extremely tied into like sixties sci-fi, um, culture and ecstatic thinking and Carlos Castaneda and hippies and LSD and all kinds of shit. But it also like, um, you know, all that kind of stuff we don't believe in anymore. <laughs> that nonsense. But on 391, it also like taps into, you know, like a, a persistent kind of maybe just maybe Western civilizational um, description of the holy and like kind of like or or just a, 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 a attempts to get close to the divine or whatever. Um, what he saw now this is 391 what he saw now appeared still and was an imago or emblem presumably created for them by the mind within the planet jove was speaking to them in other words in images it thought they would comprehend like god's light striking stained glass and indeed jove's emblematic stars shed rays of fulgur that were like shards of crystal and the black of its rendered space was in some places obsidian in others velvet and the four moons were like round chips of semi-precious stone, topaz and turquoise, jade and malachite. It was stained glass expanded into three dimensions. And just thinking about that kind of like um, spectacular presentation of the church, mm -hmm. the medieval and the Renaissance church of like stained glass and like entering into a space that has these vaulted crazy ceilings and just this architecture that is like beyond anything that 
most people, especially like poor people would experience in their day-to-day lives and, and sort of be touched by that kind of like glory of some, this, this religious experience of color and space and sound and smell and texture and all of that stuff of that kind of luxury of that. Um, and the kind of like ecstatic experience of being outside of like your own sort of everyday uh, existence when you go to church, like the two or three times a year that you actually have time to go or whatever, or that you're required to go by the church or the whatever, however many times it is. Um, I, I just like that. I just like thinking about like that kind of sensory experience of that kind of um, medieval and of that, of that kind of church experience of being like a really like going to the movies, basically. <laughs> Yeah, except it's height except it's heightened in church because then they would be speaking in a language that you didn't understand. Oh man, even crazier, even trippier. Yeah. Exactly. Like going to the foreign movie without any subtitles. Yeah. Just the like foreign, the 60s. The foreign movie. <laughs> yeah. Art house I mean, cinema. I, yeah. I I think that, that that section is great. And that again, like that kind of moves between like, you know. Yeah, I think like again, like quite subtly, the moves between like how would Galileo process this experience, like on the terms that he has available to him, uh, uh, and like this kind of image, you know, the imagery of like the whirlpool of infinite minds and infinity of whirlpools. Um, yeah, it's a you know, I don't know, man. I think that stuff is cool. That I, be- it I believe. With- that section ends with the red loon's cry. A loon. His favorite bird. 394. <laughs> Just a loon. <laughs> a loon, Hillary. Says it right there. I know. It's great. It's great. Uh Glowing cool. in curves. In Glissandi. A majestic dense chorus of whales and wolves and heartbroken souls. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, you know. Okay. Did you um, have a did you have a a uh, one of my favorite things as a child was a um uh flexi disc we had of um songs of the humpback whales. Ooh. I didn't have one of those. I had um I liked whales yeah. as a kid. They're the uh, coolest. It's hard not to think of Star Trek 4 the best of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. Um when you think about the humpback humpback whale in space and that kind of thing. I mean, it's impossible yeah. not to think of that. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I remember. So like in the, um, what's that children's book series by Madeline Lingle, uh, the wrinkle in time, wrinkle in time, like that fourth book, don't they become whales? Ooh, wow. I don't remember that. I did not I, like, I did not like those books. I, I read them and I remember I liked like whales liking them but i remember that in the fourth book or maybe the third book they became whales or they entered whale consciousnesses or something but then i kind of looked it up and i tried to google it and nothing came up so i don't know if i'm thinking of a completely different like children's book series huh i don't know anyway that might happen i mean it seems plausible to me yeah 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 well next time we'll we'll figure that out exclusively about that um (laughs) All right, so much left on the table, I'm sure. I would, uh, but we 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 thank you for listening, and we will. Um, yes, thank you. 
we'll see you next time, hopefully soon. And and we'll wrap up Galileo's dream. I'm going to take a nap or bake something or something. Oh, Madhouski's dream. Yeah, Madhouski's dream of baking. Aww. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.